I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Phillips is a New York Times bestselling author, columnist, and leading national political thought leader. He is the author of the New York Times and Washington Post bestselling Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution has Created a New American Majority. He is also the founder of Democracy in Color, a political media organization dedicated to race, politics, and the multicultural progressive New American Majority. Phillips is the host of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips a color-conscious podcast on politics. He is a regular columnist for The Nation and The Guardian, and he is a champion for multiracial democracy. His latest book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Steve, before we dig into your book, I wanted to talk a little bit about you, about a pivotal event that might have inspired you to form Democracy in Color. It's funny, I didn't really even know this fully growing up. Like to say, I'm literally a child of the civil rights movement. And so, you know, I was born in 1964 and my dad was in the Navy at the time in, in California, Camp Pendleton, Oceanside, and then moved to Cleveland Heights, Ohio, in the suburbs of Cleveland. It was July of 64. My parents wanted to buy this house in Cleveland Heights and was was going through the fair housing integration movement at the time. And the owners of the house would not sell it to my parents because they were black. And they had to get a lawyer, a white civil rights lawyer, Byron Krantz, to actually buy the house and then deed it over to my parents. And that's how we came to be to be there. And then what I heard is that one of the neighbors called a meeting. And then, which was really shocking, my dad actually showed up at the meeting, but the meeting was to <laughs> have the neighbors to discuss this Black family moving into this formerly all-white neighborhood. And then my dad says that the neighbor said, what are we going to do with Byron Krantz? Shall we string him up? And so this is like, I had never heard that story until my father was telling my father-in-law that whole background piece. I mean, I knew my mother had told me that she used to sleep in her clothes when we first moved in. She was afraid of actually the house being firebombed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people like to talk about all of that stuff was so long ago. It's like certainly in in my lifetime. Well, it's, it's. I don't know. You're not a whole lot older than I am, so it can't be that long ago. Exactly. Or, or young. This wasn't that long ago that you heard this story. Tell us what motivated you to form Democracy in Color. These things are connected because I, I like to say that, you know, I am, like I'm saying, I'm quite literally a child of the civil rights movement. And so we had that experience to move into Cleveland Heights. And then I read all the biographies of Martin Luther King in the local elementary school at the time. One of my first memories was like when King came to Cleveland, I was like three years old. My father had me on his shoulders, you know, watching Dr. King give his speech. So I had that reality. And then my grandfather, my mom's side was a minister. So we kind of grew up in the church in the black church, Glenville Church of God in Cleveland. And I always had this interest in politics. I always had this from a very, very young age. And I remember our next door neighbor, Art Brooks, ran for state legislature. I was like eight or something. And I remember going next door to his victory party. And that kind of mm-hmm. memory stayed with me. And then I had this kind of full circle moment in 2014 when I gave a talk at the Cleveland City Club and I published my first book. 
And our Brooks came to that talk. I don't think I'd seen him in like 30, 40 years or whatnot. So that was really very meaningful to me. So I like to say that that's like the childhood experience. And then those interests converged for me as a young man in the early 80s, particularly when Jesse Jackson ran for the presidency. I had this strong affinity with the civil rights movement. You had a person who was literally there when Dr. King was killed. And I had this interest in electoral politics. So a person running for president. And I had grown up in the church context. You had a lot of religious metaphor and language that was very compelling to me. So that was a very transformative experience for me. I was 20 years old when Jesse first ran for the presidency. And I like to say I've been building the small R rainbow ever since and mm-hmm. trying this concept that when the old minorities come together, they comprise a new majority. We've seen it play itself out. And so Democracy in Color was really an attempt to institutionalize that point of view. And so my friend Amy Allison worked with me when we first got going, talked about the voice of the new American majority. And so what I've tried to you know, popularize this concept of new American majority of people of color and progressive whites together are the majority of people. It's the majority that elected Obama and reelected Obama. And so Democracy Color was created as a organization institution to lift up that analysis, provide that information and offer inspiration to people about how that majority is coming to being and, and, and making its presence felt in the country overall and in its politics in particular. Efforts like this are definitely making a difference. I, I think when you look at what's happened in the last week with Warnock's win, getting people to vote based on substance and on issues. Tell us, how do we win the Civil War? You're referencing the Warnock piece. I mean, it's funny. We were just joking with my team about this earlier today that, you know, what is it? It's like the, you know, 10-year overnight success type thing, right? So we've been saying Look at Georgia, look at Georgia, this great potential there. And then all of a sudden, all these articles yesterday, Georgia's a state that has, you know, promise, et cetera. I was like, I've been saying for a decade. But there's three or four major historical echoes within this whole Warnock situation, right? So starting with, right, so I argue in, you know, my book, How We Win the Civil War, that the Confederates never stopped fighting the Civil War. And so from the standpoint of John Wilkes Booth assassinating Lincoln five days after supposed surrender at Appomattox, specifically because of Lincoln's commitment to to Black voter suffrage. And then after the brief 10 years of Reconstruction, they struck this haste-tilden compromise, which gave the South back to the slave owners. And the person who orchestrated that compromise in the 1876 election was John Brown Gordon, who was the senator from Georgia who brokered the compromise to hand the South back to the slave owners for a hundred years of legalized and unapologetic white nationalism. That Senate seat is now held by Raphael Warnock. It's the same seat over those different years. So you take that historical echo and then more particularly Reverend Warnock is the literal successor to Martin Luther King. He preaches from Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is where King was at. And he had to run in a runoff election, which was created by Denmark Groover. I opened my Georgia chapter saying that Denmark Groover never intended for Verlene Warnock's son to be in the U.S. Senate. And he created runoffs to stop a situation where white candidates split the vote and the black candidate comes in first, but doesn't get a majority. So you have a runoff so the white vote could all recoalesce and then stop that black candidate. It's almost what happened in 2020. Warnock came in first in November 2020, but he didn't get 50%. So he had to go to a runoff in that, that year. 
So you have all these different historical resonances in terms of what's played itself out in Georgia in ways that is ultimately very inspiring, but also very affirming around the path. And so the work that Stacey Abrams in particular has done over the past decade, I met Stacey a decade ago, and she says, there's a million and a half unregistered people of color in Georgia. I'm going to register them to vote. And that steady work has changed the composition of the electorate to enable Biden to win, to enable Warnock to win, to enable Warnock to get reelected. So it's a shining example and case study of what is possible if we take the smart strategies and approaches. I remember when Warnock was running, they were talking about how so many of the voting locations had closed. And so they were raising money to have these buses to be able to get people who don't have cars and whose local voting locations have closed to the poll. Between that and the gerrymandering, how does all this get better? That's why I wrote the book, is to really impress upon people the intensity and the urgency and the ferocity of what we are up against. And so I really try to make the argument around there's been a consistent, I call, Confederate battle plan. And so part of it is never giving an inch. And then another part is ruthlessly rewriting the laws. And so there's been a continued effort to restrict democracy and to stop people from voting. And that's what the advantage of taking the time to try to write and explain things is in Mississippi and South Carolina, right after the Civil War, African-Americans were the majority of people in those states. So they had to suppress the vote if they were going to try to retain any kind of. And so that dynamic has persisted really up to the present day. And so after Biden was sworn in across the South and Southwest, you have a whole new slew of voter suppression bills, changing polling places, making it harder for people to cast their ballots. You would think in a democracy that we would want people to vote. We want to make it as easy as possible to vote. But what's happening is the opposite of that, because the conservatives know that there is a new American majority. And so they're trying to have as few of them vote as possible so they can preserve their power. I think a lot of us assume that it wasn't that bad. But when somebody's in your face and saying these things, it is that bad. I mean, I remember when Trump was running, I was like, well, they can't just go around and round up people, immigrants. But it turns out, oh, yes, they can. They can. Who would have thought they could have an actual Muslim ban within this country just put mm-hmm. forward by the president of the United States? So it's true. And this is what's also I'm trying to take a historical perspective to it is we have long underestimated the political power of white nationalism. Right? So the introduction to my book is this phrase, a choice between democracy and whiteness which is a phrase from the historian Taylor Branch, who wrote about the, the civil rights years, Isabel Wilkerson in her book, Cast, And they were talking about the rise of white domestic terrorism under Trump, and so particularly the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018. And Branch says his life's work is this trilogy around the civil rights movement. He says that people said they would not stand for being a minority in their own country. He says, I guess the question is, if offered a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And then Wilkerson says, we let that hang in the air, neither of us willing to hazard a guess. And so then I use that as the title of the intro, and I framing the intro is the January 6th insurrection. It's where you very directly had the democratic process, the democratic election affirmed by the governors of all 50 states, Republican and Democratic. And so the final step of the democratic process 
then being trying to be stopped by people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing sweatshirts, saying MAGA Civil War, January 6, 2021. The other thing I didn't even realize when I was writing the book, just more recently, I started actually went back and looked at the did the research around Trump's rise. We forget that Trump was not very popular or powerful in 2015. And that when he got into the presidential race, he was polling at 4% in the polls. Oh, wow. But then he attacked Mexicans, called them rapists and murderers, talked about this wall and positioned himself as the champion and defender of whites. And he zoomed up in the polls within a matter of weeks to 24% first place, never looked back after that. So that shows the political power that none of us wanted to believe Mm -hmm. was that fundamental. But then, you know, if you really, again, step back and think about it historically, we've only had one civil war in this country where the equivalent of 7 million Americans were killed on both sides as a percentage of the population if you did it today. And that was about this existential question of, is this a white nation or is this a multiracial democracy? So it's very, very fundamental. Now, the good news is that I think there's a majority who want it to be a multiracial democracy. Right. And so that's what we need to lean in. But it is very, very sober. And this is what we saw in the Georgia race as well. I almost literally cannot recall a less qualified, more scandal-ridden candidate for Senate than Herschel Walker. And yet he gets 49% of the vote. 88% of the white evangelical Christian vote who voted against the Christian minister. And so the strength of that movement cannot be taken for granted. But again, fundamentally, we have Senator Warnock and not Senator Walker. And so that shows that the trend is in our direction, but it's by far too close a margin to be comfortable with. From a communications perspective, their messaging was incredibly effective. The broken record of fake news and they're taking your jobs and the border. There's this collective forgetfulness of how we all got here. Right. This was not a white person's world. Right. But they've made that argument for a very long time. Politics in this country really from the beginning has been fueled by fanning the flames of white racial fear and resentment. I mean, the South Carolina passed these slave laws in 1712 that restrained the rapine nature of African slaves. And so this notion that you should be very afraid of people of color in general and African Americans in particular has been fundamental to politics in this country really from its beginning. And so, but what does, you know, again, gives me hope and confidence is the composition of the country has changed. Mm -hmm. And so people of color were 12% of the population in 1965 and are 40% today. So progressive whites, those whites who want this to be a multiracial country, historically, politics in the country has been a contest between white people. There were not enough people of color to make the difference. So you have progressive whites battling with conservative whites over the whites in the middle. But now there's so many people of color in the country. The people of color aligned with progressive whites is, in fact, the majority. And now I think it's, I would argue, incontrovertible in terms of we saw, you know, Obama's election was the most clearest manifestation. I mean, I saw it in the 80s and then Reverend Jackson's campaigns. Jeff went from three and a half million votes in the 84 primaries to seven million votes in uh, 88. He was the highest runner up to that time in history. And then so it was clear that Obama's election to me was an extension of that. And we've now just seen it repeatedly, most recently in terms of the elections, you know, in Georgia, Arizona, Biden's wins in these different places. So 
there is in fact a multiracial new American majority that has the numbers to be able to defeat the forces that want to take us backwards and to build a better and more you know promising society. But it's a tenuous majority, and we have to be very aggressive and focused around investing in it and moving it forward. You have spotlighted those who defeated modern-day Confederates in your book. So can you tell us just a little bit about how a few of them have been effective? The two most recent manifestations of this are both in Georgia and Arizona. And okay. so we just talked about it just in Georgia. But yeah. again, Stacey Abrams began over a decade ago. And I talk in the second half of the guy have these five case studies of places where we've had success. I try to distill their work because it's interestingly very similar in terms of these common elements. I talk about how there needs to be a level five leader, which is a concept I draw from Jim Collins's business book, Good to Great, about these leaders who are very personally humble, but ferociously determined and focused on helping the organization be effective, that there's a strong civic engagement organization, and then there is a disciplined data-driven plan. And so what gets less attention is what's happened in Arizona. You know, Katie Hobbs, the governor, the Democrat just won the governor's race there. Mark Kelly won his statewide race against, you know, Trump's person to stay in the Senate. Biden won Arizona in 2020. And so that is the result of 10 years of work that began with an anti-immigrant, draconian anti-immigrant law in 2010. The so-called show me your papers mm. law, which was very anti-immigrant, directed by Russell Pierce. So all these young people came together to protest that, try to get the governor not to sign it. They had a vigil on the lawn of the Capitol for weeks and weeks to try to make a moral witness to her, Jan Brewer. And she still went ahead and signed it. But those activists got radicalized and politicized. And they then they got educated about the need to get involved in registering people to vote. And so people like Monse Arredondo became the director of this coalition, One Arizona. Alejandro Gomez created this organization, Lucha. And they've done this work over the past decade, registering and organizing, particularly voters of color, most particularly Latinos in terms of Arizona. And they've brought hundreds of thousands of Latinos onto their voting rolls over the past decade. And that is what enabled Biden to win by 12,000 votes in 2020. It enabled Katie Hobbs to win the governorship by 17,000 votes, but it's been the steady determined work of those civic engagement activists who have gone about changing the composition of the electorate in ways that make different outcomes possible. What are some things that everyday people could do to make this better? So I think what we need to do is find and support and lift up the leaders and organizations who are doing the best work. And so while everybody you know, knows who Stacey Abrams is now, they didn't know her for a long time, and there was not a lot of support there. So there's a woman, Ashley Robinson in Georgia, was Stacey's chief of staff, and now she runs Progress Georgia, which is kind of communications hub for those different organizations there. I mentioned Lucha in Arizona and Alejandra Gomez there. So people should give to those organizations. People should sign up for their mailing list. People should tell their friends about these groups and whatnot. Because these are the engines of change within these particular states. And then Texas, right? So Texas Organizing Project is doing, you know, transformative work. So I would think about supporting Texas Organizing Project. Its leader, Michelle Tremillo, has been at this for a decade and great work flipping and transforming Harris County, right, where Texas is. And then in terms of Harris County, Lena Hidalgo just won the county executive position again. She has great potential, and she's somebody who could make a very strong run to be the next governor of Texas. And so people should 
give to, track, promote someone like Lena Hidalgo in an organization like Texas Organizing Project? Olivia uh, Giuliana, the young woman who responded to Matt Gates's comment about the way women look and abortion. And she took it and raised over $2 million. I think she was already involved in politics, but it's exciting to see the young people making this difference and feeling empowered. So when you were doing the research for this book, did you stumble upon anything that surprised you? There's a lot of things that surprised me. Broad strokes that Mm -hmm. there's been this you know, consistent effort by the Confederates. So the first element of what I call the Confederate battle plans is about never giving an inch. And I did not even fully appreciate it. So one is the assassination of Lincoln. I did not realize that John Wills Booth heard a speech Lincoln gave days after the surrender at Appomattox, the Civil War supposedly ended, said to somebody, that means N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he'll ever give. So we all know Lincoln mm-hmm. was assassinated, but when and why was not something I fully appreciated. Second is the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. Basically, all it says is you cannot hold somebody in slavery, a constitutional amendment. Not only could they not pass that amendment originally through Congress, they couldn't pass it through Congress in a Congress that had no Southern states in it because they had all succeeded from the Union. And so this fear of alienating, which is something we still see playing itself out in politics, is a reluctance to take a strong stand on the side of justice and equality for fear of alienating those who are benefiting from the inequality. There's this phrase that they were using about Lincoln had Negro on the brain and he should be less focused on equality. So that was another piece. The 13th Amendment, I did not fully appreciate that we had, I didn't really know that we had white primaries in this country. And so passed the 15th Amendment with difficulty, but saying you can't discriminate in race and voting. So then states tried to get a way around it, ruthlessly rewriting the laws. In Texas, in particular, they created whites-only primaries. And so the Confederates were all Democrats. And so there was only a one-party region. And so winning the Democratic primary was tantamount to getting elected. And they, not just explicitly unapologetically, went to the Supreme Court two or three times to defend their whites-only primary system. It was upheld a different time with them saying, well, the political party is not a state actor, so they're allowed to discriminate. And so for 30 years, there was this back and forth around having whites-only primaries in this country in the early part of the 20th century. So you got to be on a roll here was after the passage of Brown versus Board of Education. There was a Southern Manifesto that was calling for massive resistance, signed by dozens of Congress people, and school districts shut down entirely rather than desegregate. And there was districts that shut down for years rather than actually desegregate. So getting into the details around the intensity and the ferocity, it was also helpful to put this current moment in context. Mm-hmm. It's because the level of you know intensity and the radicalness of what we are up against is actually nothing new. And so you can kind of see it through a better lens. You look at it historically. It doesn't look as bad when you remind us of these things. Right. It's on fire, like... But it's not a bigger fire than what we've yeah. already had. Exactly. When you were writing this, did you have any issues balancing your feelings with the historical perspectives? Do you have to pull back at all? No, I didn't. And I consciously didn't. Well, my wife says the book's very intense, but I it's almost the opposite, is that I felt... Mm-hmm a kinship and an obligation. And so the advantage of having the time and space to like study something, think about how do you communicate it. And I really felt this responsibility to Mm -hmm. convey to modern day audiences, the intensity 
of what people went through. I was trying to honor that struggle in terms of channeling the full scale and scope of what they were up against. And I think there is this tendency to want to believe it's not as bad as it was mm-hmm. and to try to minimize and excuse and not take the kind of necessary action. And so I really wanted to close that loophole or out and wanted us to have to face the full reality and brunt of it. And so there was no attempt to balance. I was trying to channel what people had gone through and to try to bring that into the world today. He did a really good job. It comes across very conversational, academic, not academic, dry. You've made it interesting and you've made it relatable. That's my wife's doing was a strong believer in stories and how stories are a critical part to books and to being able to communicate. So I was very, very mindful of trying to find illustrative stories and use those throughout the book. They're very effective. Well, do you have any advice for our writers out there that are just getting started and thinking about tapping out a story of their own? Well, it's funny. I've talked to different writers about how they kind of go about therapy. So I was very intimidated by the the publisher who said 80,000 words. And so it was like, can I get there? And what are we going to do? And so I think fundamentally it's about sticking with it. Annie Lamont talks about doing the first drafts, right? Mm-hmm. And so- The, the shitty was, first draft. <laughs> yes. I have chapters that would be chapter one underscore SFD, right? In terms <laughs> of, for me, be able to get something written, relieve the stress, and I could go back and edit it. I think there's a piece about just kind of sticking with it. And then I think there is a writing community in general in terms of trying to see other people who can be both cheerleaders, maybe editors, et cetera. I mean, I have issues with kind of too much editing, but you want to have some reality check around, is this in fact working and landing properly, et cetera. So I had a great book coach and editor, Charlene Chang was my book editor and coach. And so I would send chapters to her and then she would bring send them back. And so it really helped to be in partnership both in terms of the quality of the work, I think, but also in terms of just the kind of emotional support, you know, to keep at it and have somebody who's in it with you. Thank you, Steve. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. To learn more, visit stevephillips.com. If you're enjoying the writing table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support. 